the way our brains work is we always think in terms of categories. Like I, I need a, I need a minivan. I need a, I need ice cream, right? You think in terms of that first. And then you think of what the best version of that category is that you want to buy or use. Innovation plus context plus missing equals a new category. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. iPhone didn't beat the BlackBerry but it did play a different game, a game where Apple got to make up all the rules. And in doing so, it made the problem that BlackBerry was solving completely obsolete. Confused yet? Don't worry. By the end of this episode, this will all make sense and you'll never looked at product categories the same way ever again. Today is also going down in history as the first double guest episode because I'm joined by not one, but two of the best category designers in the business. Separately, one has authored multiple best-selling books, including co-authoring Play Bigger, which we'll get into later in this conversation. His writings on society and technology have been featured in Fortune, The Atlantic, Fast Company, and Newsweek. The other is an experienced sales and marketing executive with two decades worth of battle scars to show for. He previously founded Green Leads, which created the category of performance-based demand generation. But together, they're the co-founders of Category Design Advisors. Joining me live today is Mike Damphouse and Kevin Maney. Thanks a lot for joining me today, guys. Unfortunately, we weren't able to uh, get Kevin down into uh, Florida where it's a little sunnier than New York, but uh, we're, we made it anyways. The coronavirus is, is causing disruption everywhere. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting situation where, you know, we chose to social distance, you know, and, and do what we're supposed to do by Kevin not flying down here to Florida. But, you know, it's also an opportunistic situation for people that have defined categories because they can, you know, when I'm thinking I got to wash my hands, what do I do? I might reach for soap, but I go to Purell, who owns the category. Same thing for all remote work. I think it's going to be a really big play as well, because this is going to be the first time that a lot of workforces are really put to the test of, yeah, we've, we've, we've acknowledged that working from home is all right, but do, are we able to actually get the kind of productivity that we would expect if everyone was in the office? So I think there'll be a lot of kind of categories either success succeeding or kind of crumbling under the, the massive load that we're about to see. Well, we're talking, we're, we, Mike and I have been talking about this too. I mean, we're doing this interview now using uh, Zoom, which has added more users in 2020 than it did in all in 2019. One of the powers of creating and, and owning a category is that especially in a crisis time, because our brains think in terms of categories first, right? The way our brains work is we always think in terms of categories. Like I, I need a, I need a minivan. I need a, I need ice cream, right? You think in terms of that first. And then you think of what the best version of that category is that you, you know, you want to buy or use. And in a crisis time when decision-making is 
shortened, our brains want the fastest shortcut as possible to make that decision. And it's always going to go to the category leader or almost always. So that's why, I mean, Zoom right now is just dominating this the mind share of this category. So when people have to make a fast decision about, hey, all of a sudden I have to send my 200 employees home and working from home, how are we going to do it? You don't have time to make that decision. You're just going to go, all right, Zoom is it. Let's just do it. Let's sign up. Let's go. Before we get too deep into the, to the weeds of what the psychology is here, I think it'd be great if we could get some clarity on what it is we mean by category. So I've heard you guys describe category as finding innovation and context, and then looking to what's missing. Can you speak a little bit to that a little bit more? When I often talk to companies about this, I go back to, in history, to the story of frozen food, of this guy named Clarence Birdseye, who actually invented frozen food. And so we have this kind of equation that, this is actually since the book, this was not in the book at all, but this idea of, of innovation plus context plus missing equals a new category. So if you think about I go the story of Clarence Birdseye, he goes, this, this guy lives in New York at the turn of the century, 1900 or so, works for the US government. He goes up to the Northern parts of Canada to work with the, the natives there. And he sees that they're um, pulling fish out of ice fishing and throwing between cakes of ice and essentially flash freezing the fish. And they taste, fish tastes great three weeks later. And he has a bit of an aha moment and he goes back and experiments with cakes of dry ice and realizes that if you flash freeze food of any kind, you can preserve it in a way that tastes much better than canned foods do. So he has an innovation and you think about like, company after company after company that started in Silicon Valley or, you know, anywhere in the world that's, you know, they, they, all, they always start with some, like, I've got an innovation, I'm going to build this new thing. And so Clarence Burzai has an innovation, but there's also what's, what's important is the context around it. So he's doing, he finds this at the moment in time when the world is getting electrified and the first refrigerators are starting to appear in people's homes. They have a, they have a freezer at the time, mostly there to make ice cubes. And, and because of this refrigeration technology, there's the possibility, it doesn't exist yet, but there's a possibility of building things like a railroad car that can be carry frozen food or a freezer case in a grocery store. So the innovation makes sense in the context of the times and it, it uses the context to actually be able to get out into the market. And again, if you think about all of the things that um, often, you know, you just brought up the iPhone before. I mean, the iPhone came out and it was an innovation, but it, in the context of its times, we already were used to using cell phones and we were used to using laptops. And so apps and were familiar and the, the, the infrastructure existed to support it, but it just needed this one innovation to tip it over the top. So innovation plus context. And then the really important thing at, at the end of that, that a lot of companies often miss is if you've got those two things, what is the thing that's really missing in the marketplace? That space that doesn't exist yet and that nobody's doing. Clarence Birdseye story, he thinks he realizes most people either buy fresh food or they buy canned food and fresh food has a seasonality to it. You've got to go out and buy it every you know, a couple of days, canned food can stay forever, but it doesn't taste great, doesn't have the nutrients. So there's this missing space in between where you can create this new thing called frozen food that satisfies a different, it's, it's kind of tastes like it's fresh, it's kind of better than, but it's not quite, it's preserved and all. So that's the like last missing piece that a lot of new technology companies don't quite get, that they have to spot that missing in the marketplace and not try to, because a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs 
they aim for something that's already proven. You know, this, this term total addressable market that so many companies throw around is really talking about a market that already exists. If the market already exists, then the category already exists. And you're, you're not positioning yourself as this category creation you know, you know, defining and owning a category yourself. So that's what we mean by that equation and why it's so important to, to put all those pieces together to actually, you know, really create a great new business. Do you guys have a, an exercise that you go through with your clients when you're actually looking for that, that missing piece? Or is that what's required of them before they come to you as they, we've identified this missing piece. Now we need to, now we need to make sure that we're getting everything else right. That's our job. <laughs> Mike, why don't you agree to describe what, what that goes like? I'm the one for CDA that actually fields all of our inquiries. So I'm talking to, you know, five or seven, maybe, you know, whatever conversations a week with startups, with CEOs of publicly traded companies, with individuals, you know, what some refer to as, you know, little e entrepreneurs. And I'm, I'm always intrigued. I start my conversation by, hey, just tell me how you got here. How did you reach out and want to talk to us? And it usually starts from the Play Bigger. Hey, you know, one of my investors gave me a copy of Play Bigger. I read it. It was the first time that, you know, thinking about what our category was, was so meaningful to me that, you know, we just wanted to talk. So we go through the conversation and they start to tell me why they're on the call. And what I'm always listening for is the word different, missing, a lack of discussion about competitors. Like I love when somebody says, yeah, we really have no competition. And yet, even if they don't have competition, they'll still compare themselves to somebody because that's how marketers are used to marketing. We're bigger, better, brighter, you know, we're the shiny unicorn running across the field and it's natural for somebody who's been doing marketing for years to keep doing what they were taught, which is to you know make a data sheet with a bunch of specifications that people can geek out over and, and then look at price. And that does nothing. That just puts you into a crowded space. So when I'm talking to a CEO and he's not talking that way, and I can sense that they truly have an insight that's unique and they can see it, you know, the VCs have a term called a zero billion dollar market. And that's a market that only you can see, you know, and when your pitch deck is put together and it's got a total addressable market of 5 billion or whatever, I think they would be much more happy to see a total addressable market. And it, you know, it's in air quotes, zero billion dollars, meaning it doesn't exist yet, but we're going to create it. And so that's what I look for. As soon as I start to hear that, I know that we're on the path to, you know, a category creation project. And so, you know, it, it, if you're sitting out there today and you can answer those three things the way I just, you know, laid them out, are you different? Is it something only you've seen? Do you not have competitors or don't compare yourself to competitors? You, you start to feel those things, then you've got a category to pursue. So the entrepreneur, the business needs to approach you with that excitement, knowing what they have is special, you can't buy that. That doesn't exist without a person driving that intuition or having identified that pain or having felt that pain. We also get, we also get a lot of companies coming to us that are say, you know, they're 
passed a couple of rounds of financing. They're a few years old. They started the company to build a particular product or service and did that maybe successfully, but have, have kind of gotten to a point where it's that's done. And, and they, and maybe the management team has five or six possible ideas of where they could take this to go to the next level, but they don't really aligned around it. They haven't really quite been able to get their arms around it. And you asked about an exercise that we do. Well, we, we have this especially potent for us has been these three, three day programs that we go in with a company and we spend a day, we get the whole leadership team around a table and we spend a day just brainstorming and facilitating. And we've got questions that we've, we ask in kind of a methodology by the end of the day, always tends to get to alignment around an idea of what, and we keep pressing, as Mike was saying, we keep pressing on these things of what's different. What's the $0 billion market? What's the context plus innovation plus missing formula? You know, we press on these things all day long and sooner or later, this idea pops out that's really new and different. And we can kind of all around the table, you can kind of sense an aha moment of everybody goes, yeah, actually that's, that's it. But then the, the important thing is we spend that after that first day, we, we spend the second day isolated trying to capture what we just talked about in a brief 800,000 word page document that's just plain language, um, tells the story. Oh, the clarifi- clarification, Kevin. Yeah. 800 to 1,000, yeah. not 800,000. No, no, 800 to 1,000. Yeah, no, 800,000. <laughs> We're writing the Bible. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> and then the third day, we present that back to the company uh, leadership team. And that leads to a whole new discussion because a lot of times you put something somebody said right back in front of their face and you, sometimes you, they go like, oh, I'm not really sure that is exactly what we meant, but let's adjust a little bit. Sometimes it's hit spot on. Um, and by the end of this process, we end up with a whole room agreeing on this is the category. This is the story we're telling about the category. We're all around, aligned around it now. And we've got, a, you know, we've got a battle plan to go forward. So that's sort of the process in a nutshell. So 800 words isn't a lot. In those 800 words, are you defining the context and the innovation and what's missing? That's Yeah. And in fact, if, I mean, if you can't do it in that, then you haven't really landed on something that's really well-defined. So the point of view is really the foundation of what the category is, you know, and it, I, I refer to it as the, it's the CEO's TED Talk. It's not about his brand or his product. It's about why he's passionate or why she wants to go build this thing. And when you're halfway through the point of view, we haven't talked about the company at all. That's usually the last 10%. When you're halfway through the point of view, it defines that that category has to be there. You feel it. You know, you're, you're sitting there as a, you know, someone running a household in 1930 going, I wish I had fresh tasting fish, you know, in the middle of winter or vegetables. And then you hear about this thing called frozen food, or you have another kid and you need an extra seat in the minivan. It's just, you have to have it. And so when you reach that universal truth, that's no longer debatable, that the category is there and exists, then you want, you know, you've got the itch and you want it scratched. And that's the second half of the point of view where we talk about the benefits of the of the solution, which is the category. And then at the very end, we introduce that, you know, company XYZ is bringing you the first solution for this category. You said there at the end is where, where this company is bringing the first solution to a problem that we know exists. 
You know, it's also, it, it's what your point of view is. You can actually advance a category by just having a different point of view, which, you know, we're, we keep talking about Zoom. That's what Eric Juan did. He was in a category he was working for. I don't know, Kevin, was it WebEx or GoToMeeting? WebEx. And he was like, boy, this stuff's complex. It's expensive. It's hard to use. And it's not fun. It, it's painful. And so he started Zoom. And he, he came to market with just a different point of view. It's the same solution. You can go do what we're doing today using one of the other products. And in fact, they still have market share over him. But he's gaining market share way faster. And it's because it's a point of view of easy, you know, low cost of entry, fun to use. I don't know if you've ever seen the green screens you can put behind you and, you know, put yourself on Mount Everest. You know, that, that's not that relevant to a business conversation, but hey, it's there. And so the point of view can really change how you approach, you know, your category. And, and at this point, video communication is a commodity. So the fact that Zoom is growing, it, it's become like a word. They just want Zoom. Like they just need Zoom. They don't know what it means. They just know that verb. it works. Yeah, yeah, it's a verb like Xerox. It's become a good indicator that you are the category king if you, it becomes a verb in that Absolutely, space. yeah, yeah. And Mike, Mike brought up Purell earlier. I mean, it's just, uh, that was, a, that was a, it's a fascinating story. I mean, there was this company, a hundred-year-old company out of Akron, Ohio, private company named Gojo that for decades made hand cleaners for industrial use. And at one point got the idea that, hey, you know, like restaurant workers need to wash their hands, but they're not always near a sink. Maybe we can make a product that they can, you know, clean their hands with their if they don't have that access to to a sink and water and soap. So they made this thing called hand sanitizer that never existed before and defined the problem that people knew they had but didn't know they could solve. How do I get my hands very, you know, super clean when I can't get to water and soap? And so they they, they defined this category and this was in the <laughs> '80s when they came up with it and started finding out that people of all walks of life wanted it, not just people who worked in a diner. And and then today, you know, you, as the coronavirus hits and we all scramble to go get something, just like you're saying with Zoom, you, 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 you might say to your, your friends, I need to go out and buy some Purell because it's just become that, and that, that generic term. And that's when, that's when you own a category. You, you alluded to this earlier, Kevin, but the idea that you're actually trying to compartmentalize your category within someone's kind of brain, you look for what's missing and then you build a compartment there. But some of these problems can be, can feel too radical or too far away or kind of moonshot ideas. So can you help me to understand what makes a problem consumable so that the general public gets behind it and it, you're not going too far in the future, but you're also not just suggesting something that already people have thought about. Well, you're teeing up something that we talk about with companies all the time called the adjacent possible. We stole this idea from Stephen Johnson who wrote this amazing book called Where Good Ideas Come From. There's a space that already exists that is both what technology can easily do, like a laptop or a TV or a smartphone. I mean, that's technology is proven. And what society will it you'll get their heads around and adopt and use. So, you know, an iPhone or a laptop or a TV is something firmly in that space of the existing and the possible. And then there's this other realm beyond, beyond that, 
which is technology that's not quite proven or doesn't quite work yet. Um, still like lab experiments and things like that. And the public's not quite ready for and, and doesn't really understand. But what Johnson pointed out is because he basically looked back at the history of, of innovations that really changed the world when they finally hit. And he realized that there's this sort of space right between there, which he calls the adjacent possible, which is just beyond the line of what technology has, we're used to technology doing and has proven, and just beyond the line of what we're all comfortable with. So it pushes our comfort zone a little bit, pushes the technology a little bit, but it's not so far out that the technology doesn't quite work or that we just don't know what to do with it. And it's this, this narrow band that's just between those two spaces. And if you go outside of that, that's when you get the company that gets founded that's 10 years too early and runs out of money before it ever gets to market because it's not quite there. In fact, one of the co-authors of the book, Al Ramadan, started a company called Quaka Sports in the 1990s to put basically sports on the internet. And it, everything that Quaka was about is alive and well today, but Quaka went out of business because it was launching this thing in the age of dial-up modems and you know, and people not used to doing those kinds of things on the internet. So it ran out of money before it, it, it ran out of time. So we're constantly pushing companies. We, we, we show that chart or that, that graphic when we talk about it and we say, whatever we're working on, we have to push it to that space in the adjacent possible. If we're talking about something that's in the space of the possible and exists, you're already in somebody else's category and you're just gonna scratch for market share. If, you're, if we're talking about something that's too far out there, then you're too early, you're, you're not gonna make it. We have to find a way to reel this back into some place that feels like it's in that adjacent possible space. We do actually spend a lot of time talking about vision and roadmap because a lot of times the companies are stuck right before that line. You know, you've got Xbox gaming, you've got Pokemon, you know, augmented gaming, augmented reality. And if you're developing like these Oculus glasses, which are gonna provide some virtual reality gaming where you're truly interacting with something past Pokemon, that's right before that barrier, but you wanna push it just over. And if you can push it just over with your vision, then you can paint the, the, the category picture in a much better way. But by the way, if you're way out here, like teleportation, that company is not gonna get invested in, nor is it gonna survive if it did. So that's where you have to have a really good sense of the context in which you're actually bringing your, your product or technology to market is you need to know what exists and what's in research and development and kind of time it right so that you are pushing the limit to maybe two years early. So you're still the first, but you're not way too early. They're going to run out of money. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. Yep. So we define what a category is, but what... What is it? Is it a marketing move? Is it a sales move? Like what's the point in becoming a category king or spending energy on refining what category you have? Well, one, one of the most common misconceptions of category design is people think it's marketing. It's messaging, it's branding. When I get a call from a CMO who's read the book and they say, hey, we need to update our messaging and positioning. I immediately say, well, it has nothing to do with that. That's an outcome in the end. You go through the process, you make big company decisions, 
Um, you gain alignment across the whole executive team. You look at the vision, you establish that, remember the universal truth of why the category should exist. You pull together the point of view. Oh, by the way, the category name is usually the last thing that comes out. And in my opinion, not, not as relevant as the point of view, but you don't get to messaging and positioning until you start to execute. It's one of the last things you do in the process. And if a CMO is trying to drive a project in a company, because it's company strategy, it's not necessarily marketing strategy, it's company, whole company strategy. I typically say, look, why don't we reschedule a call, uh, get your CEO to read the book, and, and when she's finished the book, let's get on a call again, because if this isn't spearheaded by the CEO, it's never going to work. It goes so much deeper than just the, the language that a, one department uses. It's actually driving the decisions on a, on a short and long-term yeah. scale. Well, think about like what we were talking about earlier, like a company coming to us that's a few years old and they already have a product that they've you know, created and they already, they already have a, a company that they've built a culture and some, all of that. But if they haven't really thought about the category that they're going to drive for and the create and, and move towards, once they start thinking about that, a lot of times they'll end up going back and saying, you know what, if we're going to, if that's the space, if that's the, the new opportunity for us, our product actually has to be a little bit different. And, and, and in fact, that might also in, indicate that maybe our company has to be a little bit different. Maybe instead of having, you know, a lot of engineers, maybe we need more user experience people because we're going more consumer or something like that. Who knows? But, but the, the idea that category design is just putting a new coat of paint on something the company already does is not it. Um, it actually helps the company see all of what it does in a new light and make some decisions about where it's going to go. Kevin, you wrote recently in Business Insider about the, uh, looking at the maturity of an industry, of a category. And you mentioned something saying, if a category is mature, don't even bother. <laughs> Instead, look for a way to do something different that looks and feels like a new category and start that category evolution cycle all over again. So the, what you're talking about in that is that this is very predictable and you were kind of making... <clears throat> reference to the tech giants, social media platforms, that it's very predictable what's happened. They've caught on, they've grown. Now they're reached, some of them are reaching maturity. And now all of a sudden we're seeing new social media platforms come in and people are like, oh my God, this is the end of Facebook. But you're, what you're saying is that this is a very predictable cycle. Is that right? Um, yeah. And that's completely based on, there's a, a, a economist named Paul Garoski who died maybe 15 years ago, who studied category life cycles and actually created this, this chart that makes it, that is a very predictable life cycle that a category goes through. I mean, there are tons of companies that have a great business in somebody else's category and, and play a smaller role and, you know, eke out some market share. I mean, that's a, that's perfectly viable. But through our lens, what we're trying to help companies do is be one of those companies that creates a new category, defines something new in the world, and has a special place in changing the way we do things. So if you're in one of those categories that's already in the mature phase, you're basically just going to just try to get some market share out of something that already exists, and you're gonna play by somebody else's rules. You, you brought up at the beginning of this, this, this interview, how you know Apple 
essentially got to change and write the rules for how smartphones and app stores and all those kinds of things work. And everybody else was coming after us essentially had to follow their lead. You want to be the, you want to be the iPhone. You don't want to be, you know, the, the Motorola phone that's, you know, that's trying to just copy the iPhone. If you can do that, then you, you start that cycle, that life cycle that Paul Gorosky defined all over again, and you get to be the dominant design that, that drives the, the, the whole thing. Mike, without getting you in uh, any trouble, are there any, are there any consumer categories? Because that, that's easier to understand if, if B2B categories are typically more specific and you need to kind of know the nuances. But in consumer categories, are there any that you're seeing that are past their prime and are, have reached maturity? And maybe you could allude to a few that you are kind of seeing that are entering, entering the market in, in, in a really big way. Well, I think there's a couple examples that they're not quite at the point of entering now, they're, but they're good examples. People will recognize them. And it's all about trying to drive people to choose one category over the other as, to try, as opposed to trying to compare one product against another. So if you take that example and you go back to the 80s, right? When I was out there, you know, bringing beer into the dorm room, I had a choice. I had... I had Budweiser or I had Miller, right? Then all of a sudden light beers came out, Miller Light and then Bud Light. And you're basically just comparing. It's Pepsi versus Coke, right? Nobody's point of view is clean. And then the craft beer market started. And a couple of big, big beer companies, such as Sam Adams, really capitalized on craft beer. It's richer, it's got more flavor, it's got history behind it, it's got story behind it, it's got craft. And that's a different point of view. And people flock to drinking craft beer. As that market evolved and matured, which I would say it, it's fairly matured, I think about seven years ago, the New England IPAs started to you know, open up a whole new category, cloudy, citrusy IPAs. But then there was an opportunity there. You go out and, you know, you're trying to stay healthy. You're trying to watch your calories and carbs, right? All this keto stuff. Not to point my fingers to different types of people, but there's people that don't like beer. Or they're going out and want to have a drink, but their choices are wine, beer, or a cocktail. So they'd rather have maybe less alcohol, but not all the calories of beer, and maybe not the calories of wine or, you know, they, maybe they have bad stomach with wine. And so the new category got introduced of hard seltzer, spike seltzer. And I don't know about you, but I live, I live on a lake in New Hampshire in the summer. And there's this big sandbar that everyone pulls up to to party every weekend. I see more hard seltzer there in the summer than I see beer. It has just taken the, I don't know what you'd call it, the recreational, you know, low alcohol beer category, you know, that I want to, I want to drink something today, but I don't want it to be a 180 calorie IPA. I want to have a 70 calorie truly or white claw. And it's, I, I think that was a pretty amazing shift and it happened quickly. It happened in a matter of years, not, you know, decades. To the seltzer example is at Super Bowl this year, Bud Light brought their seltzer to market <laughs> and they called it Bud Light seltzer. Yeah. I don't know if you're, I hope you were involved in that account, but if you well, were, what would you have no, done differently there? I'll, I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have shot whoever wrote their ad 
I immediately, I had met the CEO of, I'm not going to say the company, but one of the top three craft brewers in the country. I had met him back in December at a Play Bigger book club that we, you know, we run book clubs for CEOs. I watched that ad and within 15 minutes of watching the ad, I sent that CEO an email and I said, they just compared themselves to themselves. I mean, they took the comparison game and overdosed on it. They compared their seltzer to their Bud Light and they said, you can have either. Just, you know, look at one of them, but they're all Bud Light. I mean, totally didn't, they didn't differentiate themselves at all. They're just playing off their brand. And so there's an opportunity out there. Unfortunately, in the case of Bud Light, they do have a massive brand. Uh, it's one of the, probably one of the most valuable brands, you know, in the world, you know, behind Coke and GE and some of the ones that have been around for a long time. And they probably will capitalize because of that. And there's a whole part of the book called the flywheel and being able to take the momentum you've got from building a category to spin off new categories. If we take the brand issue off the table, Bud Light certainly has the momentum, the customer base, and the recognition to apply the flywheel to a new product category. And it's like Jeff Bezos, right? He wasn't the first e-commerce platform out there, but he had a vision that he was going to be the e-commerce platform that sold everything. And he just kept using that flywheel. You know, started with books, then he moved to CDs, then he got momentum and he moved to audible books and you know he just kept going and that flywheel effect can can you know it, it can take a company instead of growing by you know 2x a year you could be growing at 10x if you're taking advantage of the flywheel how did amazon do it differently though than bud light because they're still putting the amazon name on stuff but they're at the same time creating categories aren't they well I, i'm not sure amazon has created i mean it's, it hasn't created any categories that- competes with itself essentially like mm. like i mean it's uh, amazon has created amazon web services which is a completely different business from what amazon is all about it um i mean it created the kindle ebook which was a brilliant category creation play and often happens with new categories going back to the adjacent possible usually somebody's messed around in that category before <laughs> and unsuccessfully because either the technology didn't work well enough or technology or the society or the context wasn't quite ready for it. But, but Amazon spotted that opening in, 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 at a moment when the context was starting to become right for electronic books and then made the technology and the, and the, you know, the experience much better than anybody else had. And, you know, and then boom, all of a sudden it hit the adjacent possible spot where it was both acceptable to us and the technology worked the way it should work. And, and, you know, in a flash, they own this category of ebook reader. And uh, so Amazon actually has been a, a pretty brilliant category creator, but it's never done what Mike just described, essentially competing mm. with itself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I will tell you that Amazon has also flywheeled a couple of new categories, which I can't really put words to it, but same day and next day delivery, right? I mean, I, there must be an Amazon Depot somewhere near me because I can order things at seven in the morning and get them by five o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm in Southwest Florida. It's not like I'm in San Francisco or Seattle. And, you know, I got to tell you in the, you know, with our, with our current situation with, you know, social distancing because of coronavirus, I would, I would look at Amazon as they're going to be one of the, you know, saviors of why the, the 
virus may not spread. There are people staying home and just ordering, you know, their, what they need to survive. The second flywheel example of Amazon not cannibalizing themselves. How many times do you drive around now and see a bluish gray Amazon truck as opposed to a UPS truck or a mail truck? I see more prime trucks driving around. And, you know, he, my opinion, his vision for those delivery trucks is to replace the UPS and FedEx market. That's my, that's my prediction. Let's give it five years and see what happens. Of course, there's going to be drones and robots doing it soon. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> way out on the adjacent possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in business, there's opportunities that, that will shift as well. All of these events canceling, right? Mm-hmm. The typical SaaS company spends 20 to 25% of their marketing budget on events. It's big and it supports not just lead generation, but it also supports branding, you know, analyst relations, all of that. But with all these conferences canceling, you've got massive marketing budgets just sitting there and CMOs are looking going, okay, I I had a million dollar budget and now I just freed up a quarter million dollars. They have two choices. They can either spend it elsewhere or they could decide to reallocate some of it and use some of it. And now the CFO is in the room to conserve some cash because we're in a crisis situation. Sequoia published an article or memo to their portfolio companies yesterday or today, I forget, basically saying be prepared for company, you know, fiscal situation. This is going to be like 2008. So be prepared to conserve cash but also be prepared to reallocate and think differently about how you spend your money. You can't shut the whole company down and survive off existing customers. So I think there's a big opportunity for lead generation companies to fill that event gap. You know, you look at, okay, you go to a trade show, you spend $50,000 and you come back with, you know, 200 leads. Well, those are pretty expensive leads, but they're good leads, right? you can get the same sort of effectiveness with other, other types of demand generation programs, you know, content syndication, appointment setting, you could outsource your SDR work, whatever. But, you know, a smart, a smart CMO is probably gonna look at that budget and say to the CFO, okay, you take some of that back because we're gonna need it to cushion the storm. But let's reallocate some of this other stuff to instead of face-to-face meetings and events, let's just get more Zoom meetings lined up. And get your salespeople talking because maybe people aren't going to spend this year. This is pipeline 2020. I'll give it a new turn. I, I just, just came up with that pipeline 2020. This is the year to generate pipeline. And then when we recover, it's going to be close, close, close. I would give caution to, you know, that there's a term that one of our, one of our friends and colleagues, Paul Marr, he owns a PR agency in London he's considered one of the best trend jackers in the industry. New story that's hitting the, the, the airways. And, you know, take advantage of that momentum and tell a new story based on that trend and just ride the wave. I would recommend there's a lot of opportunity out there for people today to do trend jacking if you're going to talk about, for instance, opportunities around coronavirus, but you need to do it in that humane way. You know, it's not doom and gloom stories that you want to tell, but you know, Hey, maybe there's opportunity, you know, and, and opportunity knocks in different ways. And if you're zoom, you know, you're not promoting, Hey, you know, this is 
it's a, an endless pandemic and you know you're Eric Juan who's all about fun and happiness and humanity and you're promoting a way to take advantage of social distancing by using Zoom and you know that's that's acceptable trend jacking that's not exploiting a situation so just just some thoughts an, an interesting one that I think aligns with this is, I don't know the author and I don't know the book, but an author who wrote a book about working remotely right now on his uh, Twitter said, if you buy my book about it's, it's how to work remotely, and then you post it on Twitter with the cover of it, and then you send an email with your receipt to this account, I'll refund the whole purchase of that book. So that's just like thousands of free PR. I mean, not free, he's, he's giving the book away at cost, but now he's got all that social commentary of people on Twitter that it's completely organic and he didn't have to fake it. That's, those are real customers. He just reimbursed them. One more, one more question here about category and then we're going to have to wrap things up is does category creation work for personal branding as well as it does for, for company uh, positioning? I, I mean, my opinion is, is yes, and it, I mean, it works for it works for, it works for personal branding. It works for it. It doesn't have to be like a a global company either. I mean, we in the book we we talk at, towards the end of the book about these tiny little niche, you know, category creators that influenced us when we were young. And, and I, I, my, my example was there was, I grew up in Binghamton, New York in a small town. And there was a guy who was a, you know, former Olympic speed skater from the in 1930s, uh, who, as he got older, he opened up the specialty skate shop in town. And, you know, it was, the, it was all high end stuff. And he was super knowledgeable because that's what he did. It was nobody like him around. And so for generations, he was the category king of, you know, the, the local skating scene. And, you know, nobody outside of that, my town ever heard of the guy, but, but he made a great business by being that. So, you know, categories can be very different things. And, and certainly, you know, when you think about your personal brand, if you can be something, if you know, follow what we're talking about and be something that's really unique and different, that solves a problem that people, that, you know, that people need solved that they didn't know how they could solve before you showed up you've really got something and you're going to have a, you're going to have a good career where you stand out and you're not just another cog in the wheel. Yeah. And I, I think for executives and salespeople in particular, and, and as it relates to business, a strong, you know, personal brand that isolates you as different and you're bringing something to, to your customers, to your employees, that is not something they've seen before. You know, be it as you brought a great example, empathy, empathy towards, you know, the current situation. How many sales guys start conversations or used to start conversations with, hey, how's it going? How's your family? You know, I mean, or I, I've just recently talked to two companies. One is a client and the other is a prospect. And they're both CEOs that just are so motivated about bringing goodness and wellness to the world. And they created companies that have already existed in the past uh, in both examples. But their point of view is people want to be well. People want to be good. People want to enjoy their life in ways that are different than it used to be. They want to be healthy. They want to, you know, be kind. And that point of view, you don't see that from, you know, many companies and, and many CEOs. 
and you know their their employees feel better their customers feel better and that those personal brands are so strong and the keyword there and the the keyword that's been re- reoccurring through this whole conversation is different we're not talking better it always has to be different and then no matter where the market goes what's going on positive negative you're different and that's a good thing yeah Awesome, guys. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. If you want to learn more about uh, Mike and Kevin's work, check them out, uh, categorydesignadvisors.com. That's Mike Damphouse and Kevin Maney. Thanks a lot for joining me, guys. Thanks, Stuart. Take care. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, then you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to topofmind.substack.com and put in your email, you can get access to exclusive behind-the-scenes content inspired by this show. So there's going to be candid audio recordings that aren't going to be available anywhere else, not on Spotify, not on Apple, nowhere else except on topofmind.substack.com. But that's not it. It's also a platform where I can share written content, videos, links, and anything else that I come across directly with you. You're going to get access to it right away. You're going to get access to the whole library of archived posts. And you're also going to be the first to be notified when a new episode of Top of Mind comes out. So head on over to topofmind.substack.com. See you there. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real-life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.